Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm George Chen. And I'm Paco Romaine. And you're listening to Slap Doc, a show where we discuss and dissect documentaries chosen by our guests from the worlds of comedy, film, television, and more. Today, we're talking to the filmmaking team behind the HBO docuseries Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults. Director and producer Clay Tweel and producer Shannon Riggs chronicled the three-decade-long saga of Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles, also known as Do and T, who recruited scores of people to their alien religious cult. That's right, alien religious cult. Interviewing former group members and family left behind, the four-part series goes beyond the headlines of this little understood group that ended in a mass suicide. And our guest Clay Twill is a documentary director, producer, editor whose works include Make Believe, Print the Legend, uh, Personal Subdoc Favorite, Finders Keepers, which we will definitely talk about in this episode, Out of Omaha, The Innocent Man, and Gleason. His features have been distributed by Showtime, Netflix, and Amazon Studios, and we just learned stars as well. So, <laughs> Producer Shannon Riggs is the co-founder of Parkside Films with Clay Twill. She produced Gleason and the Innocent Man series. Shannon was an independent producer working across narrative featured films, branded content, and music videos. A participant in the Sundance Female Filmmaker Initiative, Shannon is honored to be a member of Women in Film and actively mentors emerging filmmakers. Welcome to Sub. Doc, Shannon, and Clay. Hey, thank you. Thanks yes. for having us. I have one. I got a one question to open this up, and this might just end everything. Shoot. Are you two aliens? I mean, we're all made of stars, really. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. So, yeah. I'll go made of that. stars yeah. on stars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey. There's a theme here. We're we have a theme. Try to get that stars money. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I maybe. Do you? To believe in aliens, um, do they I, exist? I do. I think it's it would be pretty egocentric to think that we're the only sentient beings in the in the universe. I don't know, Shannon. What do you think? Yeah, I think anything's possible. That's kind of my motto for most things. Have you seen him? Have you seen a UFO? No. Okay. I, I like when I was young. I felt like I saw one when I was like ten. But it was you know you're young. It was very short, and uh, I, I don't know for sure. Where? In front of my house. It was like uh, in... In front I, of your house? I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. I remember oh. looking up at the sky, and like this was like at dusk one day with a friend of mine, and we were like, saw something moving around and very, you know, uh, in a way that an airplane could not move. Um, mm. So who knows, man? Yeah, who exactly? <laughs> who knows? I think it's I. I love, I love alien cults. I I love the cults that have something to do with aliens. Those are my favorite of all the cults. Those are my favorites. George, it's, do you have a favorite cult? 
um, genre. I, you, it was, I was thinking about how we interviewed Jody Willie very early on in the show, and we were talking about Unarius. Do you guys know about Unarius? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're I, like I more. Well, they so they made their own films, and they had one of them like somehow worked at early worked on Star Wars or had access to some of the same technology. So they're they made like a very early film of their belief of the aliens coming down and, uh, you know, like a caveman interacting with aliens. And they had like pretty good special effects for like the late seventies. So, yeah. yeah. One, one of the more interesting things for me in digging into heaven's gate was like understanding just how prevalent UFOlogy and the interest in UFOs was in the seventies <laughs> and how just like claiming that as part of your sort of belief system, brought a lot of people and brought a lot of attention, brought a lot of interest. And it was crazy, you know, like the, I think the Raelians and there's, there's a ton of very small groups uh, that, that started with or got attention because of the UFOs. Right. You mentioned Chariot of the Gods, right? In, in yeah. the film that's mentioned. And I remember that's like a pretty big one. I mean, there, there's so much that sort of comes out of that, that book, I think like an idea about like kind of like ancient aliens and, and, and uh, pyramids and all that stuff. Oh man, that, that's a part of the first episode where we battled forever to try to just like squeeze it as much as we could, like try to chop it down. Because yeah. you could, I mean, you could do fifty minutes just on that. Here's here's one that the popular one right now, as far as theories go, is the simulation theory. I'm like, how can you do? Can you believe in the aliens and the simulation theory at the same time? To me, they seem like they could be exclusive. You know. I don't know if you know much about That's the simulation theory, but I do. I, oddly enough, the glitch in the matrix. Yeah, it's great. Asher's, yeah, that's the so uh, campfire and Ross Dinnerstein. They produced both of these. Oh, OK, great. Yeah, we've had Rodney on the show before. We really I really want to talk to him about glitch in the matrix, too. But yeah, um, aliens. Um, OK, well, I, I was going to say there's a through line, I think, between the films of yours that I've seen, which is uh, this series, Heaven's Gate and Finders Keepers, which is sort of like taking something that you could on its surface just look at as like a sort of a morbid, you know, or pre-meme, like 90s, there were memes kind of, but this was like a meme almost of its era, the late 90s. But then kind of like digging into the, and having a lot of empathy for the people that are involved. And I think that's what I kind of gather is like an approach of yours. I don't know if you've, you're very conscious about thinking about it that way. Uh, yeah, do you want to speak on on that? that empathy part? Yeah, I'm, I'm, Shannon and I talk about this all the time, you know, um, complex characters and, and trying to understand essentially like why people do what they do le- leads you towards trying to find the humanity in everybody, whether they're the quote unquote antagonist of, of a story, like, you know, in Finders Keepers, John and Shannon, you can find lots of faults in both of those guys, but they're also um, just... Uh, eternally human in their flaws and in their their vulnerability in which they talk about themselves and the situations that they were brought up in so i mean uh, for me uh, yeah i'm just trying to trying to find a story and trying to find um some way to present a story that that is allowing the audience to connect to the to the people that you're seeing mm-hmm. on screen and um you know yeah like at a very core level just trying to like foster that connection yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking about how there is like this. Uh, another thing that you do that I really enjoyed was uh, the music choices 
And I think anyone who's seen the film, like they're sort of like it's very funny. I, in my mind, they're very funny, but they're not like totally, uh, you know, it, you're, you manage to like not make a joke out of the whole thing, which is like ultimately it's about like a bunch of it's like, you know, 39. Or I didn't realize that the, until I watched this, that was more than 39 people. There were the people that that went after they, they saw what happened and they're like, I'm still going to do this. Um, so like there was sort of these. Pretty f- I liked the use of uh, one of the, uh, do you use Leslie Gore, You Don't Own Me as one of as one of the outros? And I was just like, man, that's so on the nose in this really <laughs> like dark way. But it's like it adds there is something funny about some of this stuff. But then you also have to you balance it out with like kind of seeing, uh, you know, like the family members and how they're they're dealing with it. Um, did you think about like the humor in this when you started working on it or what, what attracted you to it? Was there was there some element of that? Sure. Shannon, do you want to comment on the music? I mean, we talked about it a bunch. Yeah, music, the music thing was a big part. But I would say needle drops in general are very, very important to Clay. Um, and you actually have a really interesting theory about it, Clay, that I think you should talk about. Oh, uh, oh, sure. Uh, I, know what you're, I think I know what you're talking about. My One of my many theories. Uh, that, like, people bring... Uh, uh, their own sense of emotion and nostalgia to any song. So, like, if you put in score that's brand new, or you put in a sound alike to a, you know, to a needle drop, then people don't have that emotional connection to be able to say, like, oh, I remember when I was in eighth grade and I loved that song, and I used to drive with the windows down. Like, there's all these things that are connected to these songs and these memories that that everyone has, and so you're you're sort of uh, playing off of that and piggybacking on their people's emotions by using these, uh, these songs. And so I like, I've, I've, I've in my career, I've done it both ways where I've, I've tried to save some money and, you know, take things out and then things don't land as well. And so I really fight hard if I, if, you know, like I try to be conscientious about it, but also use the songs to, to greatest like emotional impact. Do you guys start... Um, go ahead, please. I was just going to say, so even if you only hear a few notes of it over the end credits, which is the case with some of the songs in Heaven's Gate, you still leave the episode with your own emotional baggage that you're carrying from watching the episode as well. And I, I would imagine it helps tie in everything. I mean, there's thematic usage for songs, right? Where you're trying to tie in a theme or button it up at the end or put it in a nice bow. Do you guys start with like a list of faves and just go like too expensive, too expensive, too expensive, <laughs> you know, or like, is that how that works? I also, I've never heard need. I like needle drops. Is that, that's like, that's like where the song comes in, right? That's the editing where the song comes in. We, yeah, I don't know where needle drops came from. We, I, we just started like organizing on our drives over the years, like score, and needle drops. And so that's what needle drops are like popular music and then scores its own, uh, own thing. But, um, oh, that's, yeah, I love it. I love that word. Needle um, drops. I, <laughs> I, I like, yeah, I focus on music a lot. I probably, when I decided like, yes, this heaven's gate is going to be the next project we were doing. The first thing I did was go to Spotify and start making a playlist oh. uh, uh, um, of things that could be, you know, um, that could have heaven in the title or evoke my memory of being, you know, finding out about the group in 97. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I, I, I started to compile a list probably of like 40 songs just, oh, wow. um, 
within that afternoon. Did you consider Cake going the distance? That's like a 90s song to me. No, I love that song, though. Yeah. Clay, I'm going to put you on the spot. We're making a 15-second doc about you seeing the aliens out front when you're 10 years old. <laughs> what is the needle drop as, as we go to black? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, oh, 10 years old, so I'd be 91. Oh, so much good music. Oh, oh is that is that is Nirvana in yet? Uh, ninety one, like, yes, ninety one. That's yeah. the like, year of Nirvana. Yeah, that like, is. Yeah, like, Paul Abdul that, would be your other option. <laughs> yeah, I mean DJ Scat Cat should be scoring that one hundred percent. As we fade to black, what do we hear? <laughs> Besides just a young Clay scream. Yeah, or like. Green Day. I don't know. That was uh, Nirvana, probably. Something like Man Who Sold the World was something we had on our list that I would have uh, loved to use. There we go. You did it. You're hired, kid. Thanks. (laughs) That's Uh, awesome. So so now in the process, were you pitched this idea or did you pitch this idea? So Shannon and I had just finished Innocent Man uh, with uh, Campfire and Ross Dinnerstein. And um, as we were finishing that up, we were like in the office and Ross was like, hey, we just got the rights to this 10 part podcast done by Stitcher. Um, and he's like, I think you'd like it. I mean, Shannon, we, we talked about on Innocent Man, the community that we were profiling, the town was very religious. It had some like religious themes and uh, that we talked about throughout the couple of years it took us to make that. So Ross knew we had a, a tendency to, to be interested in that kind of theme and we listened to the podcast thought it was really interesting really well done um and and also found out that there's some surviving members and i think that that uh um yeah shane you can talk about this but like frank and sawyer were sort of the the heart of what we liked yeah so being able to actually listen to the podcast first was a good way to know that we thought that um, it could be a series uh, because there were so many things that you wish you could see while you were listening to it, which is always a good sign that it's worth exploring, which is also a question that we ask immediately, do these materials exist? Can we get our hands on them? And so then that was the next step for us was to ask, let us see, um, you know, like what, what archive there is, what audio there is. And we started digging through that and, um, yeah, felt like it was a good project to take on. So you shared research with the team that made the show, which is Glenn Washington's the host pineapple streets. Also one of the producers on that. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So what the, the company got the rights to, the podcast. So, right. This is sort of like a thing that happens. I don't know if people know in like traditionally, like if someone wrote like a story about some weird thing in like an alt weekly, that person would end up getting a producer credit or something. uh, If there was a film made of it, I don't know if this is like a common, I just learned about this a a while ago, but is that sort of the case in this sort of situation? I think so. I mean, you know, the, the produced main producers of um, the podcast, um, also got credits and, you know, sort of did their, did their own deal and were, were able to, you know, be involved with the IP that they helped generate, you know? So, um, and, and they were great. Uh, um, producer Diane Hudson, who worked on the podcast also, um, came out in the field a little bit with us, but also had developed a lot of those relationships with these people who over the years, over the last 20 years 
don't feel like they've been treated the best by the media, family members and former members who've been either made fun of or um, their story framed in a way that was divisive or, yeah, just sort of making fun of them. Um, so facilitating that relationship and being able to start the project and know like, okay, well, we can talk to these people. Um, Diane has told us that we have access to these materials. We have access to these people to tell those stories again on camera. Um, was very reassuring and, and gave us a good base from which to like good base of knowledge to start from. Nice. Yeah. There, there's so many characters to keep track of when I was like trying to like write some notes down about this. I'm like, well, like firstly, there's like 40 people and then the main group and then all the people that are survivors and, you know, family members of survivors. It's like so much to keep track of. I appreciate that you also brought in a lot of people that were like experts or more like from the sociological or anthropological angle about cults. And yeah, I, I think that was a great context to bring. And, um, yeah, just cause I mean, I think there was like a lot of, I feel like there was some criticism with, um, the Nexium film about like how there wasn't as much of that contextual stuff. And it was yeah. like, so much centered on people that were like, kind of like trying to like build up a little bit of a case for themselves of like, you know, that they were like, oh, I got out. I'm a whistleblower, you know, kind of moment. And that wasn't the case in this case, obviously, but yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm also, I just, I'm also very aware of just putting expert talking heads into, into documentaries. Cause mm -hmm. I feel like, that can be super dry and be like, in, unless they're dropping some sort of really acute knowledge that is landing and resonating in a powerful way, it usually throws me off a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the, the fact that the sociologists that we talked to either A, infiltrated the cult themselves or B, were in cults themselves and had personal stories to relay in order to like, or met some of the, you know, had personally counseled some people that got out of Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. Um, so I try to make it as organic as possible. So it's not just like I went to 10 years of extra schooling and can, and I know about this. <laughs> yeah. Were you very interested in cults before this? Um, not particularly. Uh, I think, you know, I have a, um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, belief systems and religion. Like I really loved uh, the writings of Lawrence Wright who did Going Clear, uh, that book about Scientology. He also did The Looming Tower, which is about 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. And I, what, like, I was thinking about both of those books. They're some of my favorites, but really both of them are the same story of how our ideology starts in a pretty benign situation, a benign set of beliefs. And then usually due to human ego gets perverted and evolves in a, in a drastic way and ends up completely different from where it started. And that fascinates me. And so you see that in Heaven's Gate over 22 years. And so I, I didn't even know that Heaven's Gate lasted for 22 years. I just knew the 97 uh, suicides and figured it was only around for a couple of years. But in listening to the podcast and, and understanding, like I said, the, the culture of the 70s breeding all these types of groups with this type of uh, UFO um, ideology attached to it. I just I thought it was fertile ground for for a story and and understanding that evolution. It seems it seems like um, it seems so very California when you like to me like like seventies California is just like 
surfing, long hair, <laughs> drinking on the beach, and being in a cult, right? I mean, the, the, you grew up in uh, California, right, Shannon? That- I did. And that is in part what made me interested in the project is I had such a vivid memory of this happening because um, oh. I grew up in Riverside, California, but I was in Los Angeles um, by the time this happened. But it was everywhere. It was in the news everywhere. And it was made out to be a joke, as we all know, and the Nikes and all of that. So when I heard the podcast, I was so interested to learn this other point of view on it and to hear the stories that they never talked about back then. Um, And I think that's what really um, caught my eye. Yeah. So was it, was it, you didn't, did people hear about Heaven's Gate pre-97? I mean, it seemed like it was kind of under the radar, not something that that many people knew about nationwide until the mass suicide when it was just cemented on the news. I hadn't heard about it before the suicide, but now that I've, having made the show, I've heard stories and some people have said, oh yeah, you know, and that they had heard about it or knew somebody or had a family member who had shown interest. But at the time, I hadn't heard of it. Well, there there was this big explosion of media attention in 75 and 76. And that, I think, you know, got national news attention. And then they went underground for a while. But there was a made-for-TV movie um, by a guy named Gary Sherman called The Mysterious Two with John Forsyth. It was based on T and Doe proselytizing in, like, the late 70s. Um, and that, that was on, like, an NBC... Uh, movie of the week, Sunday night movie. Um, and so that is on YouTube. You can watch for free. Um, what, what are we talking like? 77? It came out, it was shot in 78 and then came out in 80. Perfect. Uh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's it's, it is, it's great. And we interviewed Gary Sherman that did not make it into the show. It's awesome. Uh, wow. yeah, it's, it's really, I, I found it, it, it super fun to watch. I can only imagine who the supporting cast was in 1980. It's like Farrah Fawcett, uh, you know, like it's Gary Fred, Cooper. It's a guy who who played Freddy Krueger. Oh, yeah. Robert England. Uh, yes, Robert England's in it, oh, and one of the guys awesome. from Chips is in it. Perfect. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It delivers. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it. That's awesome. Mysterious Two was a film that I made. I've just always been really interested in strange things going on, and uh, I came across these several articles about two people who called themselves Bo and Pete, and they were going around and collecting followers. The Mysterious Two was a great B-movie with John Forsythe playing Doe, and I guess Priscilla Pointer playing T. And T and Doe, when they found out about it, I don't remember a specific thing that they said about it, but I know they didn't like it. I thought that, you know, I could fictionalize the the Bo and Peep character to the point that I could really make a strong statement about cults. And for me, that was the real thing, is there's always room for desperation in your life, whatever that desperation is. And when somebody comes to you and has a, a, a remedy, a prescription, a pill, for you to take that's going to get rid of that desperation, you'll swallow it. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Uh, we're, we're just talking about how like there's this sort of stereotype about the 70s cults that it is like, like a free love counterculture thing. And this was like counterculture, but kind of like early asexual like pride in a way. Uh, I don't know if that everyone identified that way, but that's part of being in the group is it's very, uh, you know, even just when I think about like this description of like, well, they were a couple and they went from town to town. I'm like, they were a couple I'm like, no, they weren't that kind of couple. They were, they were a celibate couple. I'm like, okay. So they were like, it was like a business romantic. partnership. Yeah. It was a very weird, I mean, I'm, I'm not to throw my own judgment of weird. It's, I mean, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. Uh, the, the relationship between, uh, Perf and, uh, Bonnie T and Doe. Yeah. There, I mean, I think a lot of this, uh, the combining of worlds of both T and Doe's, Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles' worldviews were, um, you know, she had this new age background. He had this very fire and brimstone Pentecostal uh, father and, and grew up in that way. But, but he was also uh, a closeted gay man. And so that caused a lot of inner conflict and I think caused a lot of this is my own sort of armchair psychoanalysis of it, but you know, he, he had a lot of self-hatred and he was trying to, he didn't like his body. So part of the belief system that he's creating with this woman is how do I di divorce myself from this body that I loathe so much? Mm. And, uh, and that was part of the core tenets of like leaving this earth, leaving, changing, chemically changing your, your body to be a pure, um, pure being. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, like it started out in a way that, that was not advocating for any you know, castrations or any of the like suicides, any of the, the, the really darker things that come in decades down the line. But it was, I think the genesis of it was part of that psychology of, of Doe. Right. I've, I've seen some writing that says that they think that, you know, Bonnie, uh, you know, T kind of like, mitigated some of the more narcissistic or like messianic complex elements of, of, uh, of, of Applewhite. And I don't, I mean, it seems like you guys would kind of agree with that or. We can assume so, but we, the, unfortunately we don't know that much about T. Mm. Um, but it does seem her daughter certainly thinks that's the case. Um, and we can say that things did get much darker after she left. So that would prove to be true. Yeah. And, and then how much they had to pivot the whole ideology, even the fact that like, well, she died of cancer, but that was, that's a separate from everything else that's gone. Like they had to really pivot all the time. Mm -hmm. That's also was fascinating. Like the fact that like you couldn't keep track of this group because they kind of changed names a lot. And then there was just like 
wasn't just like meet me on a mountain or something like that. Like, <laughs> right. I, was like I was like, how does that even pre-internet, pre like pagers? How are you like even like coordinating any of this stuff? Is it just literally like I, it's a billboard at the at the food co-op at the hippie food I mean, co-op? That's I hear you, man. I was fascinated by that too. The the podcast gets into a little bit, but I'm like the early days of like the, of everyone traveling around. There's no centralized communication system. It would just be like if you just so happen to make it to this town and see this scribbling on the wall where someone left a flyer, then you know the number to call, which is like to a payphone where yeah. in a town where T and Doe might be like so it's like so the people Grateful were, Dead, yeah. It's like yeah, it's people were were in and out. You mm-hmm. know, there's um I remember one of the sociologists, Robert Balch, um, who really has kept tabs on the group for a long time said that there was one person that like lost track of the group in the first year of its existence. And then when, when the group had, uh, they committed suicide and then there was this reunion that was created, this one person like reached out and contacted him and was like, I've been looking for this group for 23 years. I've still a believer. I, I don't like, I didn't know what happened to them. I could never find them again. This right. is crazy. No, no PR. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't like. Seems like if I was like a savvy UFO alien cult, like hanging out in San Diego, I would just take out like a ad in like the Rolling reader. Stone magazine, San Diego reader, <laughs> the San Diego Reader, Creeper magazine. You know, maybe you know. I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like that's what the '70s and '80s was all about. Was like magazine back of the magazine advertising. The well, podcast was their day. <laughs> They also did a very 90s thing, which was they created a satellite TV show in the early 90s. <laughs> like, all I can think about is like my, my uncle who had like a giant satellite that took up his whole front yard, you know, like being able to. Yeah, we had one and we had to like, you had to, I had to get my other brothers just to turn it. You know, they had that big dial. Do you had to turn? That's awesome. That was such a big deal in the 90s was like a, a local access channel or something out of your basement. Yes. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, they also like, yeah. I, I, I didn't remember this. I kind of remember this from the time, but like, yeah, they built, I didn't realize that people that were like tech savvy enough in that group that they actually like, you know, built their own websites and built websites for other people. That's the other, like someone's got an invoice somewhere that's like oh. from that company, like on I probably scrawled on like some carbon copy or something. I'm like, yeah, one website $300. And then that paid for them to stay in like a mansion. Like I, the, the financial part of this is also about, I mean, as someone who has like done a lot of things for two decades that no one understands, like, I don't even understand myself. Like some, you know, we're all guided on, you know, we all have a hope that something's going to work out after 20 years. But um, yeah, like it just, how did they organize? Like people didn't really basically have clothes or money for a lot of the time. It's pretty fascinating that they sustained it for so long. Yeah, I mean, their their lifestyle evolved. It was like they were living off a trust fund from one of the members for many years, and then that started to run out, and then they started to, to do computer coding, um, which at the time was very novel and very lucrative. They had a, Their business was called Higher Source. That was the name of their, like, LLC or whatever <laughs> that they ran all their funds through. Um, but they also were on – they literally were on the move – Every six months at most uh, for 20 some odd years because they were constantly trying to av- avoid authorities and stay away from, you know, the IRS being able to track them down, stay away from uh, families being able to find and 
um, kidnap their their family members back mm-hmm. from them, which was a thing that was happening to a lot of cults back in the yeah. late seventies and eighties. So they were they were living in a state of a little bit of paranoia and fear from the authorities throughout, and that made them very nomadic and made their like income and lifestyle really just like hard living. I, I used to be pretty obsessed with like deep programming. Like I thought when you refer to like the kidnapping and I didn't think of it as kidnapping as you know, when I was first hearing about it and thinking about it, I'm like, Oh yeah, like that makes sense. But it's like, yeah, I guess I t- today in 2021, can you deprogram someone or is it just, is it non-consensual kidnap? Like there's a lot of questions I think that come up like with like, even just like people make fun of their, their, their weird names, their OD names a little bit, but it's like, is that just as valid as, as uh, and someone illegally changing their name now? Like there's sort of like a lot of questions I think that like are weird nineties or the way that it was treated in the nineties is may, maybe a lot of the what, point of this, like reevaluating what was going on in the 90s under today's lens in a way like we're having this like 25 year like look back at at like how did the media totally botch this kind of like the same stuff with like you know princess diana now we're like and we're looking at like oh yeah the media was complicit in so sort of uh minimizing and dehumanizing these people yeah there's lots of parallels i mean the they're doing this story and this and making the show there's parallels with how the media treats people and and um, people who have different views and there's like religious parallels. There's parallels to, you know, the, the, the QAnon and Trump of it all and seeing, uh, the ways in which, um, people are manipulated and leaders are given power. So it's, uh, there's a lot to chew on. I think that, you know, Shannon and I were, were in discussing, we discussed this a lot while making the show, but like, there's only so much that you can really delve into so we're trying to give little doses of of uh, a few of these things is there something that happened while you were filming that you wanted you were like i i want to make a another doc series about this is there a tangent a branch that happened where you were like uh, this could be another great doc series i don't i don't mean i don't think so shannon do you remember anything that we no, I don't think so, but I will say that what has come up the most since putting it out has been the parallels to um QAnon and QAnon. Trump. Yeah. And and that has and there is a series about that and now, but but that that's the thing that I think people have asked us about the most in right. relation well, to what we did. I would think like doing while you guys and you know let me know if I'm wrong but while you're doing so much research on Heaven's Gates and then you equate it to QAnon you realize that Heaven's Gates was a cult and it was kind of manufactured because of someone's identity crisis or self-loathing and QAnon is real. So like how do you <laughs> Totally. Yeah, they're wrong. They, I don't know why people keep asking us about this. Yes. I mean, did you have to weigh that a lot? <laughs> you know, like in your I'm, judgment. You know, I've been thinking about making a, a doc about a pizza place in New Jersey that runs a pedophile ring, but I, I you know, still looking for it. That could be a sitcom. Yeah. That could be a sitcom, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is a sitcom. Um, I, um, yeah, that would, all, I mean, just saying that, I'm like, I would fucking watch that doc. I would love to watch that doc. Seriously, because it's, I love weird Americana. I don't know if we've, we haven't discussed this, but that's my, 
a my favorite. That's a term I've come up with for it, and I, I don't know if there's a better one. But I love weird Americana stuff, and to me, the PizzaGate thing is part of that. It'd be true crime slash weird Americana, as opposed to like Finders Keepers, which was in my mind just classic weird Americana, or King of Kong, you know, or American Movie, or you know, any of those kind of films. Yeah, I, I, I like Americana too. I like sort of that dark comedy. Um, you know, the, certainly for Finders Keepers, we were delving into like a Southern Gothic vibe because uh, it is get morbid and, and, and weird. And um, so, yeah, like that, that tone was and working in that tone definitely helped in trying to tell Heaven's Gate. I gotta, I gotta bring up another thing I, I dug up about this, which is like you really like they're overlapping into our favorite documentary like worlds. Because what is the connection with Billy Mitchell and Finders Keepers? Is like Billy, there's some connection with Billy Mitchell from King of Kong, right? I think Billy uh, for our Kickstarter was uh, generously offered to um, if you donated a certain amount. I think he like was signing some. Uh, some autographed uh, posters and uh, some hot sauce. And Statue um, of Liberty ties. Yeah. Um, yeah, Billy Billy did, I, in some small way, help us raise some money to, to be able to go shoot Finders Keepers. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's. Did you work on King of Kong? I did, yeah. I, so King of Kong was oh, the shit. first. That's sort of what got me involved in, in documentaries, to, to give the quick origin story for me. Yeah. Um, I moved out uh, to L.A. Uh, from Virginia in 2004. That's Los Angeles. That's Los, <laughs> Los Angeles. Listeners. Um, and I moved out here, and I wanted to be – I thought I wanted to work in, like, the art department, be a production designer for fictional films – and um, I had worked uh, really briefly on a, a movie that was shot in Virginia that the director of King of Kong, Seth Gordon, was an editor on. And so I'm, when I moved out here, Seth was like, what do you want to do? How can I help you? And, and, and he was like, here's Final Cut and After Effects. If you can learn these, maybe I can find you some work. I was like, cool. A few months later, he's like, hey, man, I got this footage of these 40-year-old dudes playing uh, Donkey Kong. Would you l- watch it and just log it and help <laughs> like help me out? And I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, I mean, like that began a two and a half year journey for me of working on that movie, and it was, um, I mean, very few f- people made that. It was a very small crew. It was basically like Seth was the director, Ed Cunningham was the producer, uh, a guy Luis Lopez, who I've worked with many times, was um, shooter editor on it. I was like assistant editor um uh i made a song that's in the final movie um what gummy you made a needle drop gummy substances (laughs) i'm officially a a bmi artist because of it (laughs) gummy substance drop still cashing those checks yeah i got a forty dollar check last year um Uh, and you needed help making finders keepers (laughs) okay all right but so so that was, awesome. for me, that was like watching, uh, being a part of that and seeing how people responded to like this weird low stakes, high stakes story of like people just love the characters and it really resonated with them. There's the underdog story. Um, and so these like just larger than life characters really struck a chord with people. And, and that cemented my love of docs. And I started shortly thereafter um, directing my own uh, and getting it, you know, further into the world of, of nonfiction. Were you at all surprised in how 
how big King of Kong was when it came? I mean, oh, for sure. It was crazy. Like, yeah, we had no idea that this was going to hit in any way. We're just but um, what had what what had happened was there was a DVD of for our Sundance submission cut got passed around Hollywood and a bunch of people and like agents and their assistants started talking about it. And that created this underground sort of scene for it before it had even come out. Um, And it got a lot of attention that way. Uh, And um, I just remember being at um, Comic-Con. It got bought by Picture House and and New Line. And they put up a booth for it at Comic-Con in the summertime. And I just remember looking around being like, we have a two-story booth for Donkey, our Donkey Kong documentary <laughs> at Comic-Con. Like, this is bananas. Um, That's and, awesome. Yeah, like, could not believe it. It was, it was, um, yeah, it's, it's wild to see how well that did. Yeah, it's a classic. It's a modern-day documentary classic. That's awesome. Holy shit. That's amazing. And then, we, you know, wasn't there a, a follow-up, The Son of Donkey Kong or something? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Was there? There's a Nibbler doc which has some of the same people in it. Oh yeah, Man there's the Nibbler snake. one. Yeah, yeah. There was still, the, the referee guy is in it. Walter, yeah, Walter in it too. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So, somewhere on my computer, I still have a, a medley I made of like all of a ri- Walter's original music played <laughs> on his guitar. <laughs> this is great. Oh, I, lo- I love this so much. Um, Shannon, we're actually it's like we since we're talking about like getting into film. We were kind of teasing earlier. We were talking about you worked with Spike Lee and worked on Cloverfield. Are those connected or no? <laughs> those are not connected. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but my first job out of college, I was very lucky. I'm one of the people in Hollywood who got a job off of the UTA job list. Don't know if you've heard of it, but it's this like thing that gets circulated around town and uh it's a job listing, but nobody ever gets jobs off yeah. of it is like the rumor mill. Yeah. But how Hollywood <laughs> is that? Yeah. But I actually got a job off of it and it was working at Spike's company, 40 Acres and a Mule. I was very fortunate. Dream come true. This was in um, early 2000. And uh, yeah, so I worked there for three years in development and uh, we made a few movies, Love and Basketball, which is one of my favorite movies, came out like the month after I started. So that was my first like movie premiere that I got to go to. It was very exciting. Um, and I, I worked for a few years there before uh, leaving to work with a line producer named Guy Rydell, who's now my mentor. And it is through him that I worked on Cloverfield, uh, which was a few years after that. Can you tell, this is something I've always wanted to know, and you can probably tell me, what does a line producer do? I I have no idea what a line producer does. I can tell you. A line producer is um, in charge of the budget of a film, but I would say in a more holistic way, they're the middleman between the creative and the money. Um, So they do create the budget alongside the accountant and the production manager. The production manager handles a lot more of the below the line crew hiring. And then um, the line producer's job, I think, in my understanding of it, is to make sure that um, those two worlds can meet up and uh, the creative can have what they need, but they can still stay on budget. Uh, Oh, so it's a budget thing. The, the word line is confusing. Yeah, it comes from the above the line and below the line. They're in charge of the lines. 
Ah, inter- uh, clever, clever <laughs> Hollywood. Good, good job, Hollywood. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, I've I've seen it in credits forever, yeah. and I've always wondered what that meant. Yeah, to be a line producer. Yeah, that, that's how Shannon and I met. Was actually she was working for a guy uh, um, as the line producer on Four Christmases, which is the first movie that Seth did. He directed The King of Kong. Uh, after after Kong, he directed this big budget uh, studio comedy with Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn, and uh, he was, uh, you know, he's a very loyal loyal guy. He like found a job for me where I was like photoshopping things to be in a to be in a prop, you know, yeah. like is got me got me some work, um, which basically meant I was just like playing poker on the prop truck for a couple months. Yeah. Uh, hanging out, just hanging, hanging out. out on set. And yeah, and Shannon was was there and uh and that's where we met. Yeah. And that <laughs> did you guys come up with your first project then? No, it took a couple years. Yeah. We became friends then and um I would say our first project that we did together was actually a short film called Storage that Clay directed. It's a narrative short. That's the first time we um worked together. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, that's, that's how you, that's how it should be done. It should be met on a set while Mm -hmm. doing nothing getting paid and coming up with your next idea. Yeah. I think that's, that's how Hollywood works. I think so too. Yeah. More or less. Crew always eats first. There are rules to this stuff. (laughs) That's right. Transpo eats first. Transpo eats first. Oh, now you just blew my mind. Transpo crew (laughs) talent. Transpo talent crew. Is that Transpo Talent Crew? Mm. Crew eats last. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I just got it all backwards. All right. Because I, I was just telling. No, oh, never mind. It doesn't matter. But <laughs> all right. I, I I was just pontificating the other day about. I was like, there's three th- three musts on sets. Like know know what you do, know your lines, and crew eats first. So I just got it all backwards. Transpo before apparently. I mean, if you're polite, you let crew. If you People do tend to let the crew cut in front of them if you are a do nothing or on set. Right. So Clay, you might have on on nope. He's no no. I'm saying, I'd, I'd I'd let everybody go in front of me. I was yeah. last because I knew so, I was I was just skating by and not doing much. Yeah. So there is some truth to what you're saying. You're not totally uh, okay. wrong. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I didn't completely lie about that. Yeah. Um, so and then. Um, what what year did you guys start putting Heaven's Gate together? Was just a, a couple of years ago that you started assembling? Yeah, 2018, I think, is when we first started talking about it. And then mm-hmm. uh, we compiled some materials and uh, t- talked to some of the uh, former members and made sure we had a sense of, like, what the tools were that we had to tell the story. And then we went out and uh, the folks at Campfire um, and Stitcher, we all went out and pitched it around town and um hbo max uh and cnn um just even in the room of pitching it like we had a we had interest but i think that in that room i distinctly remember them getting and wanting to protect the tone of what we were talking about probably easier than than any other place that we talked to just you know we don't want to make fun of these people we want to be we want to be like understanding a new the story in a new light and you know everyone in the room was just like yes nodding along you could see that we were on the same page so that was really nice and that was like that was the beginning of um putting it together sort of in early 2019 
I'm wonder. I'm always wondered about this. Like, how hard is it? Would it be for you guys to make a documentary about, let's say, someone that you think is guilty, and not manipulate the footage to reflect that? Let's say you're making the next Woody Allen doc. No, I'm joking. But <laughs> like, <laughs> but like, like, what if you thought it's someone was like you're doing a true crime doc and you think someone's guilty? Like, how do you not present footage or evidence or a narrative that? sways i mean that's hard i think one of the things that i think about a lot is um uh you know Werner herzog talks about this a lot which is taking the taking the audience on the journey that you go on as the filmmaker in telling that story taking them on the emotional ride and so if i come in as thinking that somebody's guilty i'm going to try as much as i can to try to break down my own preconceived notions in my head. And maybe I'm going to find something that makes me doubt that, which I then want to relate that experience to the audience. And even if at the end, they, I still think that they're guilty, there does need to be some dynamic shifts. Um, because otherwise it's just a hit piece or it's just mm-hmm. a, you know, po- polemic essay on guilt. Interesting. So you would, would you, as a filmmaker, would you take the uh, time to turn the camera t- to, to, to yourself and say, Hey, in the film and like I, doing, no, I try not to do that. I, I I'm not, uh, I, okay. and that came up during innocent man too. Cause we're having a hard time trying to figure out how to tell that story. And, um, great doc. That story is insane. Thanks. Um, yeah. but it was, it, it was, it was hard to tell that a lot of people couldn't talk or wouldn't talk. And then, um, so you have to find new avenues. I mean, I, I remember distinctly telling Shannon, like, oh, now I get why people put themselves in their movies. To, <laughs> it's, there's, there's like a, a shortcut to be able to just like narrate something or, um, uh, yeah, just to, to put a fine point on something as opposed to relying so heavily on other people's words. I, I was going to say, I think that's one thing I noticed, like, you know, with the difference between the podcast version of the story and and your version is that, you know, you have a very involved narrator in the podcast, which I think is really important for audio, and I think helps shepherd everything along in audio, uh, but maybe wouldn't have worked as well in this situation, uh, obviously, because it's like one person who was like, his relationship was a, that he had grown up in a similar type of group, but it didn't really have specifically to do with the the, yeah. the individuals in this case, yeah. I mean, if you uh, which an exercise that we did was like go back and listen to the podcast and see where Glenn Washington was filling in the gaps. Like we love the podcast, but you also have to see that he's tying the room together through his narration throughout. And so we're like, well, we have to get that practically from the people that we're interviewing in order to tell the same story, and we have to get it just as clear and just as concise as Do you as write much as a script. No, no, I think the way that Shannon and I work is somewhat different. We don't re- we don't use a writer. Um, we don't rely on like story producers that heavily or at all um, in a lot of our stuff. It's really just trying to hash it out between the editor, directors, producers, um, and seeing what the story is presenting itself as from the footage that we have. Um, I love I love the like outlining process and trying to, to, you know, get the index cards out, put them on the cork board. And like, you know, I, that, I get a lot of energy off that. I love that. Um, but no, no sit down and like write a script. 
When you're commissioned animation, though, that's got to be where you're just like dealing with all the stuff you don't have footage for, right? You're just like, okay, there's all the things we don't have footage for that we want to illustrate somehow. We got to like pin together an animation, or I don't know how you how do you and did you end up kind of and because that's got to take the longest time too, right? Just getting the animation stuff queued up. That is true. In this case, I I remember Clay saying that he wanted to try something new with Heaven's Gate, like do something that he hadn't done yet in his work. And so that's where the animation came before we knew where our holes were. They weren't, it wasn't decided upon once we had our holes. Mm. Um, it was an idea that was like, if I, and, and it, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, um, okay. an animation style that could, kind that, of, you could kind of modularly fit it in where you needed to. Okay. I see. An animation style, but also the rules for the animation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, I, I like, to me, I feel when I'm watching docs, if I feel if it's just like, oh, they don't have anything to cut to, so they use animation. And that lessens my experience of the animation. Mm -hmm. If you're successfully able to hide that, um, that's when it feels like, oh, it's a choice, it's purposeful. And so we were, we were trying to figure out, um, because we knew we wanted to use animation and find the right spot for it, you know, what are the rules for which when we can use it throughout the whole series? And so we were trying to make it live in this dreamscape of, you know, being inside somebody's head, remembering something or um, like, yeah, like a memory, like a dream. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so it just wasn't like, oh, we don't have a shot of the outside of that church in 77. We're going to animate it. Right, right, right. Um, I did have another kind of question related to that, which is like the uh, deciding to structure the story, uh, like, do you think ahead to like, this is going to end up being 10 parts. It's going to end up being two parts. It's going to end up being four parts. And was like four sort of like some you landed on or like you kind of took the, your, your cork board, uh, three by five approach and just was like, okay, we can chunk these up into four chunks. It, the bummer news is that you do have to, they make you decide the number of episodes before you get into making the show, no. which is always very, Yes. Which is very hard, and that is in part why you see so many uh, doc series with too many episodes. Um, wait, because they, they pitch wait. it with that many or something? Because you pitch it with that many. Oh, man. Um, oh, and, and, wow, is and, that how that works? And you can That's go, how that works. You can go over, but going under is, a, is another ballgame. It's a 36-part series. <laughs> <laughs> it is Game of Thrones. <laughs> You're going to love it. Yeah. <laughs> Grizzly bears, <laughs> one man in the woods. Wow, so, I didn't. Yeah. That seems so counterintuitive. And that's it's across hard. all it's the hard. different, like all the streaming services. That's kind of like the standard way it goes now. I mean, that's been our experience, um, and that's word on the street of how it's been. Um, but take I note, don't know, listeners. It, take note. Yeah. Innocent Man <laughs> was what six parts? Five parts? It was six. Six parts. Yeah. Wow. Could, could have been five. Let me could have been, throw, five. Could have been, could have been five. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I appreciate it. I thought it was awesome. I love, I hate to say it, but I love wrongly accused ducks. I really do. They piss me off so fucking much. I get so mad at like those fucking stuff shirt DAs that are like, I don't care what the evidence is. Yeah. We're convicting, you know, and it's like, fuck you. I hate DAs now. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember the innocent man well? Uh, yeah. So the well, we'll see enough. The the yeah. What just happened last week was the um, in the state of Oklahoma, 
the they're potentially going to let um, people out of jail because a lot of crimes happened on native land. And so the per- Glenn Gore, who was uh, um, convicted of killing Debbie Carter, might get out of jail based on that, whereas Tommy Ward, who we follow throughout, the, he's still in jail after 36 years, and I'm very convinced he didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, that comes across. That's that's That kind of stuff is Kafka-esque nightmare st- stuff that just kills me. Yeah. Like, wrongly convicted. Like, I, don't, I can't think of a worse... I mean, I, like... There's innocent people in jail serving decades long terms and here I'm free and I should have been in jail a long time ago. You know, like it's just not, <laughs> it's not fair, but I now the innocent man's a great doc series and it's really well made. And, um, and it just pisses me off when I watch stuff like that. I get so mad. In small towns like Ada, the prosecutors and the police were under enormous pressure to solve two sensational murders. Debbie Carter and Denise Haraway. People started calling in about Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz. The town was in disbelief. And then two years later, Denise Hairway disappeared. The police charged Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. She goes, Tommy, I didn't think you'd ever do anything like this. Once the confession tapes were played, these people were guilty. If it wasn't true, you wouldn't say it. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So randomly, I decided to watch this on New Year's Eve. This is like how I decided to bring in 2021. Like, <laughs> let me read about, let me watch about this alien UFO cult. Um, so it's been a couple months since it's been out. Um, how have you felt about the response and what kind of like feedback have you gotten about this series? So it's been really good so far. I think people are seeing it as a, you know, a, they're catching what we were putting down about a cautionary tale of what it's like to sort of surrender your power to uh, a group or to a set of leaders. Um, And I think it's been a pretty good thought experiment for people examining other religions and, and their own religious beliefs and how that fits into um, their own lives. So it's, it's been cool. I mean, um, seeing the response online, people have definitely, as Shannon said, drawn a lot of parallels to, um, uh, Trump and to QAnon, and that has kept the conversation going, especially in the events of January 6th. Like, it's uh, it's become an, a topic that's like ever present in people's mind, and they want to understand how people could believe those things. And then they're watching this show and saying, like, "Oh, I kind of get it." They're they're connecting with people who are feeling lost or uh, um, in in some way they don't feel like they're connected with with society, and so they resonate with this fringe group's message there's that one one backlit interview from the got off a newscast with the guy who's like well the republican party's the cult <laughs> it's just like <laughs> on the nose very on the nose <laughs> yeah also last minute edition <laughs> <laughs> great yeah shannon how have you have you have you uh, been feeling the response yeah, it's been great. What I I think what I love about it in particular is that a non-documentary audience has been watching it. It's sort of um, 
it's pop culture a, a bit. A lot of people remember it. A lot of it's just sort of, and that's been interesting to see and listen to people respond to it who don't normally watch documentary or they're not using the language that we all use to talk about it. They're just like responding to the castration or the the needle drops. Um, and for me, that's been really rewarding to to just sort of be able to hear how it's being received yeah, it brought out in the world. Yeah, it's yeah. Like back in this is something from like 25 years ago. It's sort of become it's back in our our zeitgeist just in so many yeah. ways. Yeah. 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 Why did it hit so hard in 97? What was it about this story that it was I just remember it was just everywhere. Was it what was it? I mean, I think it it freaked people out. I mean, to to know that People, 39 people killed themselves systematically in shifts over three days is wild and intense. And, and so I think it made my, uh, theory is like, it made people so uncomfortable that they immediately had to discard it. And the way to discard it is to make fun of it and, and dismiss it and disarm it in a way that was like digestible for society. And so like the third, it's the biggest mass suicide on us soil in history so it was just like it was a it was a big event. You also have the advent of like twenty four hour news cycles. We're coming off the back of OJ in ninety five. It was like Waco, OJ, yeah, yeah. Heaven's Gate. You know, like it's a thing that you can talk about and find pundits and find write articles on for three weeks and fill the columns, fill the time. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I guess too. There is footage which was kind of weird and creepy and eerie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I still remember them going, walking through with the camera and the purple shrouds and the Nikes and the bunk beds. And Yeah, to, just, to Doe's credit, he wanted to be infamous, and he made sure that, like, there was video to go along and, and to carry their, their legacy on in that way in, like, a very video-centric uh, <laughs> culture. Yeah, that's, wow. Well, he did it. They did Insecurity, it. man. Insecurity. <laughs> it's People, the root of ingenuity. Maybe? It, it's a, <laughs> Is it? Could be. It's led to a lot of horrible decisions, though. You know? Like that is true. Throughout yeah. history, a lot of horrible decisions have been launched on the battleship of insecurity. Talking about Trump? Uh, right. Okay. Write that down, folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, that's, a, that's a good T-shirt, just a battleship with insecurity on it. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I am. Climb aboard. <laughs> There's room for everybody. <laughs> I think. I don't know. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Go away. <laughs> That's, um, so Gleason, I also in, really enjoyed Gleason. Let's, can we talk about that for a hot sec? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how did that come about? I'm a big football fan. and um, Yeah. I mean, I remember watching the game where Gleason blocked the punt in the first game in the Superdome after Katrina. Um, and what was that? 2006? Five, five or six. Yeah. Um, so I remember watching that live. I, I also remember watching the game. Uh, several years later where he had just been announced that he had ALS and he led the chant to start the game. I watched that live and being like, oh my God, it was so emotional then. And I, I didn't even follow the team that much. Um, but to see the, how the, the story came to me where there was um, a couple producers looking f- who were friends of Steve and Michelle, and they were looking for a director to come on board because they had all this footage that they had accrued over the years. And a lot of it was shot by, you know, Steve himself or Michelle or, you know, caretakers. 
Um, there was a couple uh, kids, Ty and David, who like were sort of young filmmakers who became caretakers and blended that role. But they just had covered everything that was happening in that house for three and a half years. And they had all this footage and it was very raw and emotional. Um, and you see like this change. I mean, Shannon and I talk about all the time, like what's our, what's our thing that really we're going for is like, can you see somebody grow and learn and change oh, on God. camera? Like and, an arc, a transformation. And this was that on steroids. Where oh you're, yeah. You're seeing a guy from, you know, peak football shape and become an invalid and not be able to move, talk, uh, or walk. And so, um, yeah, that I like saw some of this footage and went down there and talked to the family and, um, sort of, uh, won, won the job to, to, to be able to tell the family story and, and, um, started filming a little bit ourselves, but also we had, I think I, they gave us like 1200 hours of footage. Um, and so then it was this big editorial task of like, Shannon and myself, uh, my wife, Mary was a producer on it. Um, Seth Gordon was as well. And we were just like, how do we manage all this? How do we come up with a system that's going to be able to not, so we don't miss anything. We get through it and we can like figure out and sculpt down and find the story. Uh, what, and what was that system? Well, uh, a lot of it has to do with like editorial organization and being able to come up with a way to watch things and tag them and bin them. This is very inside baseball, like logistics. <laughs> like, no, I and, love it though. I'd love uh, to. It's our audience is kind of a lot of filmmakers. Here, so they're going <laughs> to yeah. relate. Um, well, also my buddy made a documentary and he shot about 1200 hours of like Michigan's winning, winning this high school football coach, but he had so much footage. He got so overwhelmed. He never made the doc cause he didn't mm. know what to do with it. So this is actually kind of throwing it to him right now too. <laughs> So. That, that happens more than you think, too, that people just to get overwhelmed. And so, um, you know, I, I basically have a set of ideas or like themes that I think that are interesting. And so you're, you're going through and you're logging the content for what's actually happening on the screen. But you're also logging it for like, oh, this could fit in that theme. And so you're, you're cutting it into a theme sequence as you're watching it. And what it allows is by the end, you've watched it and you've absorbed it so many times. It's a pretty laborious process that you have a pretty good sense of like what the best moments are, but also the themes that have the most footage that, that are like the deepest that you can explore. And then you can look in those theme sequences that let's say you have, you know, in our, in our 1200 hours, some theme sequences were just a couple hours long. Like, I think we, we, we culled it down to like 50 hours, which was like our best mm -hmm. content. And then from there, we were able to put together like a two-hour rough cut, um, you know, just based on like what's our favorite things from the 50 hours. Um, so it's just, it's like the stair-step process. Uh, right. But yeah, I mean, the backbone of the movie was fathers and sons. And, and so seeing all the footage through that perspective. And then it really wasn't until we started editing, editing it together that we saw how important Michelle was, his wife, and that like the back half of the movie sort of becomes Michelle's movie. Um, that that was oh, yeah. that was discovered through editing. Interesting. That's an interesting process. I would imagine a lot of you. There's a lot of happy accidents that get discovered through editing. I would imagine where you're like, "That's gold." I didn't yeah. know it. You know, because I mean, you can't. 
when you interview people, you're not conscious of like, this is, or, or are you, I guess I should ask you, are you conscious of like, this is a great moment? Or are you just so in that you don't think of those things at the time? I try to be present as present as possible, but yeah, sometimes you you bookmark things and you're like, that's in the movie. That's a great soundbite. Um, but I it must've been tons on finders keepers. Oh my, just like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But there, there's a book uh, by this famous editor, Walter Murch, called In the Blink of an Eye, which I give to almost every assistant editor that I work with. And it, it, des- it describes his system of how he organizes stuff. And part of he, what he bakes into his system is the fact that there are happy accidents. You can't have a system that's so rigid that you can jump right to the word that you're looking for or right to the shot. You need a little bit of wiggle room so that you can be like, oh, I don't remember even that we had that. And that's perfect. I was going to say there's a pretty interesting, I think it's in the New Yorker article uh, interview with Adam Curtis. And he talks about like his system. And like, firstly, I'm just like when from six years of talking to directors, I'm like, it's kind of like a metadata librarian problem. (laughs) Yes. Essentially what you're doing is you're, you're doing metadata for video and audio and then but then Adam Curtis does all this stuff. It's so like, so impressionistic and just so like dream state and just like these are so, these just all jumble of associations. So it's really fascinating, like reading about his his the way he handles like the BBC archives he has access to. He's just like, I know I just I labeled it like red, red feather or something like that. <laughs> like I found red feather and I plopped in it. I'm like red feather that will associate with this thing. Like the communist uh, bloodshed, you know, <laughs> something like that. We, I was just talking with somebody uh, yesterday. They recommended that I start watching um, I Can't Get You Out of My Head, Curtis's new yeah. doc series. Um, so I started it last night. Um, and, and oddly enough, um, Shannon and I uh, recently both watched Hearts and Minds, which is like in its own way uh, a pastiche of like just like things that fit a, uh, an overall political statement but are like drawn on just like the emotions of these images back to back yeah yeah it's it's like it's very much more like just like 20th century video art kind of vibe to, <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 that's 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 amazing i think and you guys are you guys stoked that you're in documentary filmmaking when documentary films have had like a resurgence i mean are you guys happy about that I hopped in right at the right time. Gleason was my first documentary, so <laughs> I feel very lucky. But so yes, the answer is yeah. yes. Yeah. What are you guys? What are you guys working on? Can you tell us what's next? We have a couple things. <laughs> yeah, we both nod. We're like, mm-hmm. we're like, can, can we? Can we? No. Um, <laughs> can't, <okay. laughs> yeah, there's we have two there's Pizza Gate. So. And the- <laughs> <laughs> they both run production companies now. Uh, we have a couple things we're working on, um, some that we can talk about, some that we can't. There's a um, doc in the world of the opioid crisis following some of these lawsuits against uh, big pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors mm-hmm. that we've been following uh, for four years now. So that's that's sort of our, our next big one right. that we've been tracking very closely. Yeah, um, Zach yeah. Is that, is that, yeah. You know. Uh, I, I won't say I won't say too much. There's uh, you can Google it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's lots out there about them. Um, but then 
you know, what else, Shannon? What, are, what else do we have? We, ha- we do have a Netflix series that hasn't been announced at all that we're working on. So we can't talk too much about that, but that's and come back. That's on the exciting. Show we'll come back on the show. It's, it's, it'll be down the road a bit, but we'll gladly come back for that. Talk can, you about- tell me, can, can you tell us how many parts there are? How many in the series? <laughs> <laughs> We don't know. Can you make it like that for a loop as well? Can you make COVID has thrown that for a loop? Can you make oh, the first like Bandersnatch like documentary, like a choose your own adventure oh documentary for Netflix? Oh, I would love to. Yeah. I, would, I would love that as well. Oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love to see a doc about the Dominion suing everybody because oh, yeah. of the um, you know, the voting booth or the mm-hmm. machine thing. Yeah. I think that'd be an, uh, that'd be an interesting I'll follow doc on Sydney Powell right now. Could be, uh, yeah. could be interesting. <laughs> oh my gosh. She's in a pickle. Oh. What a pickle to be yeah. in. Like oops. Nobody would honestly believe me. What I was saying was crazy. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Uh well, thank you guys for being on SupDoc. This has been um, extraordinarily delightful. You guys have made some of my favorite docs. So thanks so much for coming on our podcast and talking about. Of course. Thanks for having us. All of them. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for having us. Absolutely. And yeah, please come back when you, um, when your next Netflix nine part <laughs> series comes Let's out. Let's make it a three part interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Choose your own adventure podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, Shannon, Clay, thank you so much and best of luck in the future. And um, we'll be watching your docs. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about SupDoc at supdocpodcast.com, recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel, and our show was engineered by Will Scoville. Our associate producer is Nick Colsis. Please donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash podcast. And if you want to help us out in any other way, please just share the show with a friend. Join the Doc Talk and check out our hot takes, pictures, and videos on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're SupDoc Podcast on all of those platforms. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can find Paco and George's comedy gigs when those are happening again on the About Us page on the site. SupDoc is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise with SupDoc or if you got a film or opinions or if you want us to have a certain guest on, please hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subduckpodcast at gmail.com. 